How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Some of you perhaps have seen this show called Strange Inheritance. Have you seen it? I haven't actually watched an episode. I've seen snippets of it. Uh, you won't believe what some people inherit in a groundbreaking new reality show from Fox Business. We're bringing you the bizarre artifacts and outrageous stories that are all part of someone's strange inheritance. Do you have a strange inheritance? Hosted by Jamie Colby. And I guess you can send your strange inheritance in, and maybe you too can be featured on a show that should be five minutes long. That's an hour. I don't know, whatever. My some view of reality television. I want to think with you today about an unanticipated inheritance, an unanticipated inheritance. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue unpacking this short letter from the Apostle Peter to this dispersed, probably harassed and persecuted group, uh, probably historically not far from the time of when Nero is going to come into his megalomania and burn Christians. Uh, tonight we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. He begins to sum up, to sum up. When you read therefore in Pauline literature, you know what's the therefore, therefore, the connective tissue, a subjunctive clause in order that. Those phrases are always flags to tell us, pay attention. There's something summarily, an explanation, something is coming ahead. Here we have to sum up all of you. Be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. This summary probably covers chapter 222 to chapter 3, verse 7, for those of you note takers, 222 to 3, verse 7. And those were attitudes and characteristics about relationships. We looked at all those in some detail. And so this is a summary of virtues or five adjectives that Peter gives us. And I want to look at each of them in a little bit of detail. Let me give you a theme to keep in your mind, righteous living results in blessing or righteous living results in reward. Something along that line is what this passage is summarily teaching us. If we live the way Peter is instructing, the way God intended, there'll be reward. But we have to, we have to understand what that means and what it doesn't mean because it can be a little slippery in our Western mind. Let's look at each one of these harmonious, first of all. To sum up, all of you be harmonious. Surprisingly, it's from a Greek word that sounds a lot like it, harmophron, harmophron. Remember, much of our English language are words we robbed from other languages and brought them into English, and we either, either transliterated them or created them anew in the English language. It simply means to be united in spirit, united in spirit. Cindy and I love the symphony, and uh, there have been times in our history where we've gone a lot. We have some friends, and we've we bought a package of like half-season tickets this year, so we go from time to time. And I don't know, maybe you're not a symphony fan, but uh, we love going to the symphony. And sometimes, I have to admit, I fall asleep. But uh, if it's music I know or music I'm interested in, I love And it's, it's a good sleep, actually. But um, uh, when, when they come out, each of these musicians comes out somewhat disorganized. Uh, they may sit or they may be, have a standing instrument. They get in place and they're what? They're tuning their instrument. 
And even that, just that cacophony of these professional musicians, most of whom uh, know more music in that part of their finger than I would know in you know, five lifetimes. They excite read, they're brilliant, they know their parts, they know you know, they can you know, not pay attention, know when to come in. I mean, they're brilliant musicians. I enjoy even that tuning up. It it's, builds an anticipation. And you hear, whether it's the oboe player, the flute player, the bass player, the violin section, I'm a sucker for strings. But then the concertmaster comes out, also known as the first chair violin player. The concertmaster comes out, and he or she uh, looks to the oboe player who plays an A. And from that A, the concertmaster then takes his or her bow and draws it across their violin. And then everybody kind of, it's a, that one note tossed out, and then everybody's now playing essentially the same note. So the cacophony in one second has gone to an organized harmony. And then the conductor comes out, and they have all the little rituals of shaking hands. Which actually, has a great story if you ever want to waste some time reading about it. It's really fun. Uh, but they come out, and they shake the hand of the concertmaster typically, and then he or she takes the, the box, and then with a hand or maybe a baton or maybe both hands and a baton, he he or she pulls it together, and now you've got a symphony. That is harmonious. It's not harmony the way we think of it, Johnny, one note. It's you've taken all these unique, individually talented men and women who have, I mean, an oboist cannot play a violin unless they're extraordinary people. I mean, they, they are one instrument. Their one expertise comes together to make a harmonious sound, and it's magical, it's, it's ethereal, it takes you to places... Um, we are to be harmonious with other believers. It's an interesting notion to unpack it a little bit, to think about we don't always agree with other Christians about every little thing. In fact, we have lots of disagreements. <laughs> we have church splits. We have denominations. We have church fights. We have lawsuits. We have all sorts of joyful things in the name of Jesus. But to step back on what Peter is writing to this dispersed, hostile audience, uh, audiences under this hostility, he says, you be harmonious. We can probably conclude they're facing difficult situations. They're living in a land that's not their home. There might be shades of persecution coming their way. And he tells the believer, be harmonious. I traveled to Nigeria. I spent about a month there years ago. And over there, there's many more millions of Christians than there are in the United States. Uh, but there's also denominations and sects, S-E-T-S-S. I can't say that word very well. I have to spell it. Uh, and, and these groups, um, they have very different theologies, the cherubim and seraphim, deeper life, evangelical churches of West Africa, Equa, Baptist, Methodist, uh, Episcopalians have been there forever, obviously. And um, they have nothing to do each, with each other in America. But over there, they're all one because people are killing you. So if the terrorists come to town and they round up pastors and put tires on them and fill them with petrol and burn them in front of their churches, it doesn't matter if you're a Baptist, Episcopalian, Equa, Deeper Life, whatever church, you're one. And I would think that's a pretty good picture of what Peter's saying in a persecuted environment as a Christian. Uh, you know, we talk about it in essentials, non-essentials, so forth. Um, when you're being killed, it's harmonious. How do we do? I was uh, sharing with a friend a while back. I can't say exactly what my father used to say, but you'll be able to fill in the blanks. My dad, when someone would disappoint him, would have this sort of gruffling sound. He'd say, people are no good. 
I can still hear him saying, people are no good. And I don't know about you, but those tapes are embedded in my brain. You say the things your parents said, whether you like it or not, some of you. Yeah. So I do. I said, mm-hmm. Um, and not, not long ago, I, I, start, I felt, I'm going to call it conviction to be spiritual, not necessarily, but I just felt bad about saying that about people. And I pray about it a little bit. Okay, Lord, this isn't right. And I just came up with, it doesn't flow as well as what my dad said, <laughs> but I keep saying, no, people are hurt or hurting. Instead of people are no good, people are hurt or hurting. And preparing this message, I go, you know, maybe that's what it means to be harmonious. That I can look at people who I disagree with, who maybe are mad at me or whatever, think less of me or whatever. I, I can choose to be harmonious. Sympathetic from the word sympathes, sympathes. Now, some of you uh, were English majors or you, you like grammar and word studies and whatnot. Um, when we differentiate sympathy from empathy in the English language, sympathy is typically to feel sorry for someone, and we say empathy is what? To feel with someone. And that's fair in English. The Greek word sympathy is a great word by itself because the little three words S-U-M, sum, patheos, it means suffering. Literally, it means with suffering. To have sympathy for someone is to be able to suffer with them. It's a neat word. Peter says, you are to be sympathetic. I am going into your suffering. Uh, Most of us who've had a child who had to undergo medical procedures know a thing about sympathy. I've shared this story on many occasions. It might be new to some of you. But uh, one of our daughters, when she was not quite two, was having some kidney ongoing bladder infections, and they weren't sure what was going on, and so they needed to do a particular procedure where they fill the bladder up with uh, fluid and take x-rays as the bladder is evacuated. Um, So it sounds pretty simple. Well, when you take a small child in there, um, one of the parents, I was elected, has to go in to restrain your daughter while the tech inserts catheter and fills that little girl's bladder up with this this IV fluid, basically, and takes x-rays. Well, uh, this technician was having a very difficult time doing this procedure. She tried four or five times. My little daughter is screaming at me, Daddy, make her stop, Daddy, make her stop, Daddy, make her stop. I would crawl on that table and take that catheter a hundred times for my daughter, wouldn't you? I actually want to take a catheter and wrap around that tech's neck, but, you know, she was, she's a human. She's having a bad day. She's hurt or hurting. Um, but, um, but uh, boy, if you, you know, with your kids, I mean, my mother used to say, I'd cut off my arm if it would help, you know. Sympathy. You, you suffer with them. You die a thousand deaths for them. I have a, we have a friend uh, right now with a, a little girl at Vanderbilt. She's lost all her hair. She's got all kinds of issues. Don't know what's going on with her. Don't know if she's got... A mass, cancer, what? And you die a thousand deaths for your daughter. You feel with them. Now, if it's your spouse, Cindy, I'll buck up. You'll be fine, you know? You'll, you'll take that test, right? Where, where do we differentiate? Peter says we're to have this for all. So we see people as hurt or hurting. We, have, we feel with their pain. Are you in other suffering? Third, brotherly, from the word, no surprise, Philadelphos. Philadelphos. By the way, some of you have read lots of books on language and words, and there are these, um, I would say, misstated or over-informed where they parse the different words, agape, uh, uh, Philadelphos, all these different words, eros, and they, they make these whole chapters out of these, out of these 
words. Words meaning is in usage, not in definition. You can't just look it up and see what it means. You have to see how the word is used. And I've used the silly illustration about the peanut and the elephant. We don't have to do that again, right? So the, how, how the word is used is what gives it meaning. Uh, Philadelphia can be a wife's love for her husband. It's not just a brotherly love or a bromance the way people say it today. It's used in Titus chapter 2, verse 4 of the wife's love for her husband. The picture here is, do you have a relationship with your family? You can be, you know, terribly at odds with your family and, and have all sorts of conflict, but at the end of the day, they're your family. There's a love, there's a familial love there because they're, we're related. Four is kind-hearted, the very rare word in the New Testament, but this word is pretty easy to the English brain, to the Western mind. It's just tenderhearted, it's compassion toward people. Do you care about people? She and I have a dear friend who's... Uh, probably one of the most compassionate people on the planet, and she would keep our, our children when we travel. And we lived in Northern Virginia. And one time we, were, we had picked up our two uh, younger children, had stayed with this family, and we were driving uh, back home, and uh, my son had this heavy sigh. And uh, we said, what's wrong, buddy? And he said, oh, nothing. And he, and he, said, he said, Mrs. Trafficking is the nicest woman in the world. And translated, she did whatever he wanted for two and a half days. But she, she exudes this kind-hearted, she has this awe about her, this awe. She cares deeply about people, like an empath. Five is humble in spirit. It's one word in Greek, but we can't figure out how to get one word into English, so we have to put humble in spirit. The word primarily means lower. It's the idea of do you have a lower, healthy opinion of yourself? Uh, Paul in Romans says not to think more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And not to think more highly by implicit, not to think more lowly either, but to have a sober assessment of who we are. Well, here Peter says to be humble in spirit, I deserve nothing. We live in a culture that we work hard, we go to school, we, you know, we save, we plan, we do these things, and we start to feel we've done pretty good at some point. That's when you have a timeout and say, I deserve nothing. God gave me the ability to work hard. He gave me favor. He was kind in my success. He was kind in my children, whatever, fill in the blank. And so we keep a humility toward that. Truly, apart from God's kindness, we'd accomplish nothing. Luke 14, 11, Jesus said, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. A lot packed in those five adjectives, um, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read through those or think about them, does, do one or two sting you? I'm not that. I, I, could, I could be a little more kind-hearted. I could be a little more humble. I could be a little more sympathetic. These are what Peter is saying as he culminates his relational dynamics. These are the things that illustrate a righteous person. A, a person who's living righteously is a person who's going to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Well, he establishes that principle, and he explains it's contrary to our sin nature. And so what he says in verse 9 is, do something different. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you recall for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. First, remember, there, 
dispersed. They're probably enduring hostility and perhaps persecution. They live in a land that's not home. Secondly, Peter is giving his instruction now that includes two things, and we may have missed it, words and deeds. He's not just talking about behavior. He's talking about words and deeds. First of all, not returning evil for evil. Most of us, not all of us, our sinful nature is a knee-jerk reaction of revenge. We want to get even. We want retaliation. We want retribution. Romans 12, 7, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. You don't have to be a Bible student, an exegete, a precept person, a BSF, or you don't have to be anybody that studies the Bible. That verse is pretty clear. Never, never, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. We could go home right now. No place for it. Again, in Paul's writing, 1 Thess 5.15, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So first of all, not returning evil for evil. Secondly, he says, or insult for insult. <clears throat> this gets to words, specifically abusive or injurious speech, words that intend to harm, words that are meant to hurt someone, reactive. And what comes to mind immediately is social media. Uh, I follow a number of people on Twitter and um, other sources of media, and it's astonishing how we can enjoy the retaliation and the comments and the cutting injurious words and how hurtful people can be in a text or a, twi- or a tweet or a post on Facebook or what other, other um, media outlets they use. Uh, Kenyon writes, when Christianity calls upon us to do what does not seem possible humanly, it reveals its genius. That is, it is supernatural. Peter, of all men, should know what the grace of God had done for him in this respect. Not had only he been fast with the sword, but he was quick with his tongue. Peter continues, for you were called. This you were called. And I wanted to circle back and talk about that word called just briefly. It's occurred three times so far in 1 Peter. This makes the fourth. The first one was chapter 115. But like the Holy One who called you, and we talked about the call of salvation, remember? He's the one who called you. He called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. In chapter 2, verse 9, Peter wrote, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, called salvation, out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then the third occurrence in chapter 221, for you have been called for this purpose. Now that's different than a call to salvation but it's still consistent with what Peter's doing. You've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example for you to follow in his steps. So part and posture with this called salvation, in this chapter we have, for you were called. And we want to unpack what that means. God has not forgotten that you and I live in a hostile world. He hasn't forgotten life's hard. And notice the way Peter writes it, you're called for this very purpose. I've got to underline three times, this very purpose, the very purpose. You're called to salvation. You're called in chapter 221 for this purpose, which involves some suffering. And now he adds to this calling theology, you were called for a purpose to inherit a blessing. So we have an upswing now in this section. This is fascinating. 
what does it mean that we're called to inherit a blessing? Is this some strange inheritance we're going to get from some uncle who has a collection of you know, doorknobs or whatever? I don't know. Uh, what blessing is he talking about? What's this inheritance he's talking about? Brownson writes, Christians bless others, not in order that they should inherit a blessing, but because it is God's will and their duty. And that duty follows from the fact that God has made them inheritors out of his blessing. Now, this is not some nuanced prosperity gospel, that if we live righteously, then God will reward. And at first blush reading, that can be what it sounds like. If you have these five virtues, you do them well, you're called for this reason, and you're going to inherit a blessing. On the surface, it could go there. That's why it's so important. He's not blessing them because of their righteous living. He's blessing them because they've inherited righteousness. Inherit is a loaded theological term. It's a very complicated term, frankly. Throughout Scripture, the notion of inheritance is pretty simple, that when someone dies, uh, the firstborn is the one who gets the largesse of the inheritance, which is why the firstborn through time immemorial has been an important child, especially if it's a son. In the New Testament, the word inheritance and the, the group of words that are rendered from kleronomios, inherit, inheritance, inherit, uh, have to do most of the time with salvation, that our inheritance is salvation. Now, that doesn't mean there's no temporal inheritance or there's no temporal blessing, but the word group typically means when you read inherit in Paul or Peter, you know, they're talking about salvation, the salvation package. Now, like most of you, I hope all of you, if you haven't, you need to do it. Uh, you need an estate. Well, I don't have any money. You need an estate. You need to pay 350 bucks and find an estate planner or an attorney or somebody and sit down with him or her and come up with an estate. It's all uh, forms they have filled out. You fill in the blanks. You need an estate. The more wealth you have, the more children you have, you've got to get a little more sophisticated. But everybody needs a basic estate. What happens when you die? Where things go? Who gets to who manages them? What if both you're incapacitated? All these joyful things. You know, I'm a cheery, cheery guy. All you need to talk about, you need to plan about, you need to get ahead of it before it happens because it's too late when it happens. So Cindy and I have done these over and over again as we've had more children. And even recently, we updated everything. And uh, you, you, you're equally distributing Whatever you have, let's just call it your estate, among your children. So we have four kids. So we, they will get equal distribution of whatever remains. If Cindy outlives me and doesn't spend it all, then whatever remains, they'll get those things that we have allocated for them. That's a real easy way to understand inheritance. We get a distribution we didn't earn, we didn't deserve. It wasn't because one child was better or more successful than another. There's no ranking of four children or six children or two children. They get a distribution of the estate. That's a good way to think about the spiritual inheritance. Now, one sidebar that my mind ran to, and I was studying this, it may or may not come into your mind, but I was curious about are these blessings all future-oriented? And the reason that comes to my thinking is that the Old Testament believer thought about two aspects of blessing. There was a temporal real blessing, and there was a future anticipated blessing. And I think, I don't know, Western Christians, I don't know where you are, but it struck me, I wonder how many Christians today are thoughtful about what we call a blessing and what we're anticipating as a blessing in the eschaton, in the future, when we live eternally with Christ. The Old Testament believer, the, the way he or she thought they were blessed, number one, was fertility. If you didn't have lots of kids, God didn't bless you. Rachel and Leah, 
Abraham and Sarah. If you didn't have lots of children, you weren't blessed. If your livestock did not multiply, you weren't blessed. If your crops didn't grow and produce a bounty, you weren't blessed. If you didn't acquire more land, you weren't blessed. So for the ancients, it was pretty simple. Have a lot of children, have a lot of livestock that bear a lot of, of, of offspring and continue to multiply, have land, have more and more crops, have more and more produce, that was considered blessing. But that blessing was temporal in that animals are slaughtered, animals die, crops are harvested, you start over again. Other than their children, everything had to be replenished. So they looked forward to the rain. Rain was a blessing. Paul even uses that in Acts, that God gave you rain to remind you there's a creator. So they looked at blessings in a different way. Um, I'm not going to presume. How do you look at a blessing? The job you have, the cars you drive, the home you live in, the homes you might own, your portfolio, your children, your grandchildren, how do you measure a blessing? Um, I'm always struck in... I want you to turn, if you have your Bible, into 1 Chronicles 29. This passage to me is sort of the benchmark to understand blessing. And whenever I start scratching my head about weird things, I always go back to these benchmarks. What, what, does, what is a blessing? And how do we interpret blessing today? When someone says, God bless me, I got a brand new car. Well, is that a blessing? God bless me, I got a promotion, I got a raise. I, have, I, my grand, my, I got another grandchild coming. This is my 15th grandchild. This is my fourth great-grandchild. Well, let's look at what David does here in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. Now, this is the culmination of all these offerings that have been assembled for the temple complex. And this is an extravaganza for the Jews celebrating uh, the generous nature of God toward his people. Chapter 29, 1 Chronicles Verse 10, so David blessed, there's the term, the Lord, in the sight of all the assembly. They've gathered together, and he's blessing God. When you, I say it all the time, bless God for something. If my friend, my friend sent me a text today about his daughter, I said, bless God. They've ruled that out. Next thing. So that's acknowledgement to God. He blessed God in front of the assembly. Blessed are you, watch the second person pronoun, you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. The beginning blessing is you're eternal, you're our God, monotheistic, you're our Father. You are blessed forever and ever because of who you are. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you. So he'd gone from a vertical attribution of who he is what he's done, his character. And now, verse 13, we get a little bit of a horizontal angle to this. We thank you, and we praise your glorious name. But who am I, and who are my people? See, we went from the second person pronoun to the first person plural. You, 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 you. Now in verse 14, who am I, who are my people, that we should be able 
to offer as generously as this. For all things come from you and from your hand, we have given you. All we're doing is giving back to you what you've allowed us to have. Verse 15, we are sojourners before you. And tenants, what a great picture. We're just living in pop tents. We're just moving from place to place. As all our fathers were, our days on earth are like a shadow, and there's no hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand, and all is yours. Since I know, O my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now, with joy, I have seen your people who are present here make offerings willingly to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers preserve this forever in the intentions of their heart of your people, heart of your people, and direct their heart to you. And give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes and to do them all and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Now, I encourage you to study that passage on your own time again and again and again. The differentiation of what he says about God, everything we have, all his provision. You were the one who enabled it. You're the one who made it possible. You gave it to us. We're just giving it back to you. Who are we? We're nothing. We're like tenant farmers. And so this to me is a great picture of how Man blesses God. So when Peter's talking about you're going to inherit a blessing, what in the world is he talking about? The Old Testament believer acknowledged things like kindness and mercy and success and prosperity and health and so forth and so on. What about the New Testament? Do we say the same? I would say yes. The fundamental level of, of having lots of children and lots of uh, agriculture and produce and uh, you know breeding animals, that seems... It seems quaint and pastoral to us, uh, but that was life in that time. Um, the Old Testament believer looked at God's kindness, that the acquisition of these things were because of God's goodness, not because of the individual. So to me, to recalibrate the idea of God bless us with stuff is not wrong, but let's, let's have a critical eye and ear when we talk about God's blessed me because I have material possessions. Because you could be a faithful person living in an impoverished culture and not have material possessions. So your blessing isn't merely because we have air conditioning and heating and comfortable cars and nice houses. Those are, those are great things, but I don't want to run too quickly and say, oh, we're so blessed to have this. Well, yes, we are, but does that equate the kind of blessing that's important? It's temporal. The spiritual blessings, the eternal blessings, the ones that are more interesting. So if we tie this together with righteous living and blessing that we inherit, uh, we start to put together this fixation on current life or future life. These relational things of brotherliness, kindness, gentle spirit, sympathetic, so forth, are important for the way he wants us to live, and in this we inherit a blessing. The New Testament companion of this to me would be Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing. What more do I need? Well, Peter now goes to an Old Testament passage to confirm what he's just told them, which to me is fun and cool because we don't think of Peter as a theologian like we think of the Apostle Paul, much to our loss. He knew his stuff. And he's going to say the same thing, not with his pen, but with the psalmist's pen in chapter 34, verses 12 to 16. Verse 10 of 1 Peter 3, 4, the one who desires life 
to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, the transition here is pretty you know, abrupt, we might say. But for the Jewish mind, uh, I'm going to argue this was a top 40 song they knew. They knew the lyrics the minute he started with the first few words. Just like you and I could, you know, we could start singing a song and most of us would know most of the lyrics because music and, and word put together cement the memory. Go figure. It, it's, it's how we learn. There are five imperative active verbs in this passage, and you can take a look at them. Keep, turn, do, seek, and pursue. They're very strong verbal tones. They're almost overstatements, we might say. Keep his tongue from evil. Turn away from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. Um, the superscription of this psalm ties it back to 1 Samuel 21. And that was the story, you may remember, when uh, David is on, on the run from Saul, and he comes uh, into the area of Gath, and there's a king named Achish. Achish and he, uh, Achish's servants, that this area, they know of David. And they even know him so well, they report to the king, this is the one they say of Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. That song was spread around the Middle East like a top 40. They knew it. So Peter is referring back to a psalm that is written about David when he's on the run and fearing for his life. Don't miss the connections here. This is very cool. So David is aware of this. David doesn't have the full army at his disposal. He's on the run. So what does he do? You remember the story? He plays mad. He drools. He acts like he's crazy. And there's a great line later on in that chapter where Achish says to his, his people, he goes, why do you bring me more madmen, basically? I got enough madmen around me. Why do you bring me another crazy man? I don't need crazy men around me. So David uh, cleverly uh, saves his own life. So this psalm is an interesting psalm. It's gratitude for his miraculous uh, saving while he's away from his kingdom. He's persecuted by his own king. He fears for his life with enemies at home and enemies on the run. So why does Peter the apostle choose to inject this into the story? I think it fits perfectly. And it was a song they all knew. They all knew the lyrics. They all knew what was going. And he only has to give them a little bit of it, and they can fill out the rest of it. You and I desire life. We want to love. We want to see good days, the psalmist says. In order to do that, we keep, we turn, we do, we seek, we pursue. It fits his audience well. Derek Kidner, by the way, some of you who are you collect commentaries and whatnot, I mention Derek Kidner often. He's with the Lord now, but he wrote these little books, Don't Be Deceived. But he wrote two on the Psalms, one on Proverbs, one on Genesis. And what that man can say in a few sentences, I couldn't write given a year. He is the most incredible, synthetic guy. He can take so much and put it in one little sentence. He's, he's just a genius. So anything Derek Kidner, K-I-D-N-E-R, writes, I have either electronically or I have his books on my shelves. Delightful British guy. He writes a substantial quotation and some distinct 
future echoes of the psalm. Listen again. A substantial quotation. Now, he's writing this about Psalm 34, not about what Peter's doing. That make sense? I'm writing what a commentary is saying about the psalm, not about, okay, all right. A substantial quotation and some distinct future echoes of the psalm in 1 Peter 2 and 3 and in other epistles illustrate the indebtedness every generation has to this psalm. And then he goes on to write about a, a song I don't know. It's um, Some of you, if you grew up Lutheran, it's a Lutheran song called Through All the Changing Scenes of Life. Anybody know that hymn? Apparently it was big with the Lutherans. Anyway, uh, but that's where the Psalm 34 found its way into a modern hymn, hymnology. Kinder continues, The good you enjoy goes hand in hand with the good that you do. The good you enjoy goes hand in hand with the good you do. He did not say if you do good, then good's going to come. And that's the prosperity theology nuance that can lead into error. The good you enjoy goes hand in hand with the good you do. I really like it. It's a real good way of explaining a nuanced argument. But if we do this thing, will God bless us? No. We're going to get equal distribution because we're part of a family. But it's important that we do something. The good you enjoy goes hand in hand with the good that you do. From the temptation of the serpent in the garden until this very day, it comes down to, has God really said, is life out there better than life in here? And the believer in Jesus Christ has to ask him or herself all the time, is the life in here better than the life out there? How often do we think the life out there looks better? How often do we think the wealth, the temptation, the power, the, the, the ease of life, money, sex, and power, that looks a lot better. That looks a lot more exciting, a lot more fun than the life in here. And the life in the garden was heaven on earth, as close as it ever would be. And now, of course, we're living outside. Well, he continues, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to the prayer, their prayer, but... The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God's eyes are toward his righteous. Um, we talk about anthropomorphic. When the human authors under the divine influence of the spirit, inspiration are given pictures. There are metaphors and similes. The, the Bible is literal. That does not mean there is everything is taken literally. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he might find those whose heart is... That doesn't mean two eyeballs are circling the planet looking, right? We understand a basic imagery. So it's literal, but not necessarily literal in every nuance of it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. What does he mean? He's aware of them, and his ear attends to their prayer. So you see God have his ear cupped. It's a picture. It's a metaphor that God's paying attention. You're dispersed, you're living in a land that's not home, maybe you're in hostility and persecution, maybe you're suffering. God's not deaf and he's not blind to you. He pays attention. He hears. Remember the uh, Lord of the Rings, the, the uh, all-seeing eye of Sauron? Remember? And then they had the, the little, whatever those things, some of you know the literature, but maybe they throw a towel over it so they can't see through these, like five of them or whatever, unaccounted for. Anyway, uh, I think of those pictures. You can see everything. I don't know about you, when I was a kid uh, raised in the parochial schools, the nuns talked about Jesus sees everything you do, everything you do. I mean, I'd, I'd be awake at night, he sees everything I do. I'm terrified. And he does, in a sense that he cares. 
Not that he's judging. He hears because he cares. Uh, one of uh, Cindy's and my close friends was a counselor. is with the Lord now. And he would often say many clients would pay him just to listen and to care. Tragic statement. Got to pay a counselor for someone to listen to me, to make eye contact with me, and to care about me. But in, a, in every one of us, we want to be listened, we want to be heard, and we want someone to care, right? And Peter is reminding us of the psalmist, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ear attend to their prayer. It's a beautiful picture. Um, he sees. He knows. Your hurt, your fear, your loss, your suffering, your concerns, your worry about your future, worry about your kids, worry about your grandkids, worry about your healthy pregnancy, fill in the blank, worry about your PSA. He hears. He cares. He's not off guard. One more sidebar. Who is the one person, if you could pick anybody, you know, they talk about three people for dinner. Who's the one person that would be your expert? In the military, they use the phrase SME, subject matter expert. Who's the person that is your singular expert? Maybe it's a musician, maybe a physician, some medical care, maybe someone who's a wealth manager, politician. God help you. No, I'm kidding. I mean, whoever it is, who's the one person you look up to like your hero? Like, boy, if I could have like a day with that man or woman, I'd do anything to have. Got a picture? Got something in your mind? What would you ask him or her? What would you talk to them about? What would you say to him or her? Anybody you want, just go with me for a second. You get to pick a person you would love to pick their brain, to talk to them, to let them hear you, to see you, to give you words of encouragement or tell you you're crazy, whatever it would be. Now, if you were with that man or woman, would you talk the whole time? Hopefully you wouldn't waste it. You'd ask a lot of questions, you'd take some notes. If you got to see that person on a regular basis, would you tell them the same thing every time you saw them? Why then, when we pray, do we say the same things every time? We're talking to the God of the universe. And most of you have eaten already, but we're, we're going to eat afterwards. And I'm no better than anyone in here. I can fall into the rut of saying the same things over the same meal every time. That's why usually when I go out, I make the other person pray. Because I've heard myself pray enough. We're speaking with, in a relational setting, the God of the universe, the sustainer and creator of all that we can see and that which is unseen yet. And we use the same 15 or 20 words. That's why I love the Psalms. And that's why I love what Peter's doing here. He's pulling on a song, psalm, hymn that they would all know. And it's almost like the minute they were reading the scroll, the audience just started singing along with them because they knew these words. And it's precious and powerful. He hears you. He sees you. He's God. He attends to you. He knows. So maybe it will stir us up to our prayers or not quite so cliché. The wicked do not go unnoticed. Peter's audience may have connected this to their current oppressors, to those who are harassing or persecuting them. God's face is against. It's another image that's very powerful and common in Scripture. His eyes and ear attend his own, but his face is against. 
Jesus will turn his face, what, like flint. It's an imagery. The Hebrew facial picture was very important. Nostrils flared, their eyes, their face, their countenance. How's your countenance falling? The facial features were very important as they are today. The wicked do not go unnoticed. Now, the all-watching God, the all-seeing eye, is against those who do evil. He knows as much about you and me as he knows about the wicked. But God's not pernicious. He's not a God of wrath and vengeance who can't wait to destroy them. He wants none to perish. But because he's a holy and perfect and just God, people will perish. And as I've said many times before, we're all perishing. Some respond by faith and are safe from that wrath. All mankind deserves that wrath. C.S. Lewis writes, we can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally, and unspeakably ignored. Pretty chilling. That's the man or woman who doesn't know Christ. That's the one who hasn't trusted in the person who worked for Well, one big lesson for this passage, righteous living results in reward, but reward is not a result of righteous living. Does that make sense? Righteous living results in reward, but it's not the result of the sense of, if I live this way, then I will be rewarded. It's, let's just call it the posture. We're expected to behave well, and God blesses us in kind, not because of our behavior, but because he's kind and he's given us his salvation. We cannot state declaratively that righteous living equals longer living, but I would argue that righteous living can engender a joy about life that most of the world doesn't understand. And any of us with aging parents or aging grandparents who have seen them become bitter and difficult see the difference of a person who lived well and those who live with regret. So I would say experiences both temporal and eternal. We're going to have a blessing now and a blessing in the future, and we can't just separate those two super neatly. The reward is that wisdom can be enjoyed in this life. Peter did not include the entire text of Psalm 34, but the last verse, and again, I would argue uh, front to back, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, Psalm 34, 22. And none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So it's not what we do to be righteous that he rewards us. It's that when we're in him and we're redeemed by him, we cannot be condemned. And therein is our reward. God's promise is the redemption of souls of his servants. We could say that it's the ultimate reward of redemption. You know, when you and I die, you might get your grandma's china. You might get, you know, as I did, my grandma's table and buffet and whatnot, and now it's all in storage. <laughs> After 37 years of marriage, we don't want it anymore. And you know what? None of my kids want it anymore. It's just stuff. This is an unanticipated, unappreciated inheritance that's eternal in the heavens. I really think when you and I cross that threshold from this life to the next, after we've you know, fallen down 100,000 years because we're so overwhelmed with the person of Jesus, I really think we're going to wonder, why do we ever worry? Why do we ever fear? Why do we ever want revenge? Why do we ever fill in the blank? Because this horizontal Christianity is eating us up. It's eating us alive. And somehow you and I have got to stand up and look up and smile at the future 
This world is not our home. This life is at best a clean bus station, a clean bus station. We're trying to make it a really nice bus station. And some are better than others, but it's still not home. And we have an eternal inheritance in the heavens that awaits you and me. So let's live like, as a lot of people say, a child of the king. We were grafted in where we didn't deserve it. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Thank you.